Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Wild Branches. a fascinating passage of scripture. It's found in Romans 11, and it's directed towards the miracle of Gentile Christians who have now, contrary to what one might expect, well, they found their way to worshiping Jesus the Messiah. And if you think about it, it really is quite remarkable. I mean, what would interest non-Jews in the Jewish Bible? Why would we Gentiles become fascinated with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with a hope of the promised land? I mean, why this interest in the covenant the Creator made with His chosen people and the hope they nourished of the day in which their Messiah would come? And yet there are people from all over the world in the most unlikely of places that can quote from the First Testament who glory in the promise of the Messiah and who have bent their knee and called Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, they've called him their Lord and their God. So what accounts for that? Let's get back to Romans 11, and I'm reading verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The passage I've just read is using a picture or an analogy. Imagine an olive tree in which the natural branches are broken off and wild branches not native to that tree are grafted into their place. The analogy is that of the Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jews, were grafted in to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, into the story of God's covenant with man, and into God's story of salvation through his chosen Messiah. That was not our native root system. And go forward now to verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And I need to say here that, you know, the passage I've just quoted is a part of a longer argument in which the wild branches are warned against pride or any sense of superiority. But even though that's the point of the passage, even still, there is another point that I wish to emphasize that here. The point is that branches, or shall we say, the natural branches or the majority of the people of Israel— were broken off from the promise of the Messiah in order for the wild olive branches, that is the Gentiles, to find their way to the Messiah. Room was made for us. Okay, let's leave the analogy aside, and so here's the obvious question. Why is it necessary for Israel to rebel against her rightful Messiah in order for the Gentiles to find their way in to the hope of the Messiah? Or let's put it another way. Why can't there be enough room on the tree or in the promises of God, for there to be the majority of Jews who love their Messiah and for the Gentiles who also love the Jewish Messiah. I mean, why does anyone need to be broken off? (laughs) But don't you see, that's just a sterile philosophical argument meant for a philosophy or a theology class in, you know, some Ivy League classroom. Let's talk about what actually happened in history. I'm reading Acts 8, 1 to 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, we looked at this passage yesterday, but let's look at it again. We remember that these events happened immediately after the stoning of Stephen. 
Stephen, the first Christian martyr, had been a deacon in the early church, charged with overseeing the daily distribution of food to poor widows. But he was also an effective evangelist and had led many Greek-speaking Jews to faith in Jesus. In response to his activities, the Greek-speaking synagogues, in order to, to counter his effectiveness, had made three charges against him. He was blaspheming Moses, he was blaspheming God, and he was speaking words to the effect that he planned to destroy the temple. The charges were mere slander. So he was dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling high court of the Jews, where he was asked to give an answer. And his answer so infuriated the Sanhedrin that contrary to law, the high court itself formed a lynch mob and dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. You know, the Jewish Talmud taught that there should be no mourning or proper funerals for a criminal who was put to death for his crimes. But no one had ruled on Stephen's guilt or innocence. It was just mob justice. And so on the very day he was stoned to death, within hours of his death, for that's exactly how Jews buried their dead, members of the Christian church found a burial tomb for this beloved brother, and they wept openly. This event might have turned against the Sanhedrin. I mean, soon everyone would have known that contrary to their own rules of justice, they had illegally and in fury formed what we think of as a lynch mob. And how would the city of Jerusalem handle such an outrage? Would there be cries for justice now to find out who's responsible for this? Well, Saul of Tarsus was an understudy of the Sanhedrin. You know, still a young man, he had been trained by the very famous Rabbi Gamaliel, and you might have remembered from your own study of the book of Acts, that it was Gamaliel who had urged the Sanhedrin not to take action against the apostles, but to see what God was up to in this Jesus movement. And so I think it's fair to say that Rabbi Gamaliel was a moderate, but his disciple Saul of Tarsus was definitely not. Before anyone had an opportunity to question the illegal activities of the Sanhedrin, he decides to take action. He begins what must have been nothing short of a murderous career He's a hatchet man for the Sanhedrin. He was both good at it, and he's also passionate about it. And there will be no one raising any questions against the Sanhedrin, not while he's on watch. It's not the Sanhedrin that will be on the hot seat. Saul has one goal, completely destroy once for all the new emerging church of Jesus Christ and take the pressure off the Sanhedrin. And so it will be imprisonment of Christians. Saul's thugs are knocking on doors. They're dragging people out into the streets and into prison. This ends here, says Saul. The Jewish fascination with Jesus will end. He's going to see to it. You see, years later, it was this same Saul, or Paul as we know him, who would write the words of Romans 11, the broken off natural branches, the natural outgrowth of the First Testament should have been faith in Jesus for all Jews. But Saul of Tarsus was the one who was ensuring it would never be. Had it not been for such a violent reaction to the faith in Jesus, I think it quite likely to say that the church would have continued on in Jerusalem and given enough time, it would have supplanted the influence of the Pharisees. Without persecution, the church and the message of Jesus would have won the day. But let's ask if that would have happened, then what? See, I've mentioned it before, but let's think back to an event in the life of Jesus, and it's recorded in John chapter 4. And Jesus is engaged in a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and Jesus is sitting next to a well, and a woman came there to draw water, and Jesus asked her if she might give him a drink. And she's astonished. You're a Jew, she says. 
John interjects the telling of the account by saying that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Indeed, they did not. Now think about how difficult it would have been for the Jewish followers of Jesus to reach out to the Samaritans. I've already mentioned a number of key points of difference between them. But here, let me focus on one key issue. The Jews said the place of worship is Jerusalem where the temple is. And the Samaritans had their own temple and insisted that the place of worship was supposed to be on Mount Gerizim, the mountain that Moses had designated as the Mount of Blessing. Now, keep that in mind as our story goes on, but it is key. If the followers of Jesus had continued to meet in Solomon's colonnade, which was part of the temple complex, and if this had continued to be thought of as the centerpiece of the Jesus movement, well, then the age-old question of whether it's Jerusalem or whether it's Mount Gerizim, well, that would have never changed. The Samaritans would have resisted simply because of the political divide that then existed. Think of it in today's terms. You know, in North America, there's often a political divide between Christians and non-Christians based on, well, not on Jesus, but on who and what you vote for. See, the political intrusion into the Christian faith makes evangelism all too often almost impossible. Do you vote this way or do you vote that way? And we all know that's the divide that presently exists. Well, now, that kind of divide also existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. So then, what's the solution to that? You know, in this case, it was the persecution that broke out against the followers of Jesus who were driven from the temple and who, among other things, were being accused of not honoring the temple in the way that they ought. And suddenly, things are changing. And the Samaritans are hearing about it, and they're ready to listen to these guys now. So let's go to Acts 8, 4 to 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you. It's our Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience some of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many other biblical figures walk. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's royal palace. Worship at the Garden Tomb and go sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Enjoy daily Bible teaching from Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged as we share time with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and special musical guests. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity to visit the Holy Land. You'll be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Find it fascinating that when the church was facing the problem over the feeding of widows, that two of the seven men that they chose to oversee that task are mentioned elsewhere. So we've already seen that Stephen is an effective evangelist and he also bravely faces death for the cause of Christ. He's a great hero of the Christian faith. Another one of those first seven deacons is a man named Philip. And Acts chapter 8 is all about that Philip. 
He, like Stephen, is also an effective preacher. He's an evangelist and a man who is able by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. I think that speaks to the kind of people that rose to leadership in the early church. Leaders were people who knew the scriptures, who won people to faith in Christ, and were noted for their passionate zeal for Jesus and for his gospel. See, it's a great failure of today's church when leaders are only executives or business leaders or people with management skills. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Management skills are of great worth. Administration is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, and it greatly enhances the church. And furthermore, both Stephen and Philip must have had some administrative skills. I mean, if they were to oversee the daily distribution of food to widows. However, the ones who rose to leadership rose to leadership because of their passion to make Christ known and to be reaching ever more people for the gospel of Christ. They were evangelists and men full of faith. And so we've already seen that the persecution of early Christians occurred as the result of slander in which Christians were said to be speaking against the temple. And that made them people not accepted in Jerusalem, but a door was opened wide for the hearing of the gospel in Samaria. God's ways are strange indeed. And and as we study Acts 8, we can see how Paul's metaphor of the broken off branches made room for other branches to be brought in. You were not told why Philip went to Samaria nor are we told which city he went to. You know, the capital city of Samaria was historically called Samaria. Herod the Great, and yes, that is the Herod who massacred the boys in Bethlehem, he had renamed the capital city and called it Sebast. You know, some suggest that Philip likely went there, and it's possible. But it's also possible that he went to Sychar. You remember from John 4 that Jesus actually met the woman at the well there, outside the town of Sychar. And you might also remember that after that encounter, the woman went into the town and told as many people as she knew, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ or the Messiah? And John, who tells us that account, went on to say that many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And then Jesus stayed in Sychar for two days, and many of the people of that city said that they now believed, having met Jesus themselves. Whatever came of that encounter... Well, we have to believe that Sychar was not unfamiliar with what was going on in Jerusalem as the followers of Jesus were being persecuted. But now that the temple leadership in Jerusalem was turning against Christians and persecuting them, killing and imprisoning them, I have no doubt that Samaria was ready to hear. Of course, from our text, we learn that not only was Philip preaching the gospel, but he was doing miracles. He was casting out demons and many paralyzed and lame people were instantly healed. And many of us don't have a worldview where we contemplate God's mighty works in history. It's often the case, especially in reaching unreached people groups, that miracles do convince a great many people that that the evangelist is indeed speaking about the living God and that the God who lives is visiting them with grace. And so Luke says there was great joy in that Samaritan city. And we need to pause here and think back of Jesus' words that his followers were to begin in Jerusalem, then take the gospel to Judea, and next into Samaria. That taking of the gospel into Samaria happened because of two deacons in the early church, Stephen through his martyrdom, and Philip through his understanding of what God was doing and seizing the opportunity. See, I think the best evangelists have always been those who have a sensitivity to see what God is up to. It's not that good evangelists have invented the best strategy. Rather, they see the hand of God and are willing to follow his lead. 
I think this is also true of everyone who's used by God to win men and women for Christ. Good evangelists notice things. When someone speaks about their own spiritual struggles, evangelists see it as an opportunity, not one they've created, but one the Holy Spirit has created. We're going to see that again in Philip when he ends up speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch. It was the Holy Spirit that led Philip to that man. In other words, evangelism, it's not about bullying or harassing people. It's about becoming aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing, both in the individual lives of people and in their culture as well. However, what happened in Samaria also tells us that Satan is prepared to fight back. In Jerusalem, it came through persecution, but here in Samaria, it comes through false teachers, through spiritism. So let's continue to read Acts 8, 9 to 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. See, Simon is an interesting person. He later became known as Simon Magus. Justin Martyr, who is a great Christian leader who died in the year AD 165, over 100 years after these events were recorded, said that Simon Magus later became a leading heretic in the early church. And Justin Martyr should have known because Justin himself was a Samaritan. He said that Simon revered himself as the highest God. Later on, the church father Arrhenius in about AD 180 said that this man Simon was the father of the Gnostic heresy. There are a lot of other things that later got said about Simon, and it's hard to sift through all of it and come to terms with what was true and what was not. But one thing is plain. Simon was a problem before his supposed conversion, and he was an even greater problem after it. At any rate, at this time, we're told that he practiced magic. And lest we interpret that to think that he practiced the art of illusion, as we think of magicians today, that's definitely not the case. You know, we might think back to the time of Moses, you know, when God gave him power to perform miracles. And then, at least at the beginning, the magicians in Egypt were able to perform the same miracles using their magic arts. There are demonic miracles, and Simon majored on that. The populace of Samaria believed that this man was the power of God. It's hard when reading that to actually determine what it is that the Samaritans actually believed about Simon. You know, they might have believed that his power came from God, or they might have believed that he himself was a god. But it is clear that for a great deal of time, he did hold the Samaritan culture in his grip. We need to go back and reflect on Jesus' day in that Samaritan town of Sychar. You know, Philip was in fact ministering there. We might wonder if Simon himself was around while Jesus was in Samaria. I mean, what accounts for John making of no mention of him way back then? You know, some take that to mean that Philip met Simon not in Sychar, where Jesus was, but rather in Sebast, which was the capital city. And that might be the case. Well, of course, we don't know. And it may well have been that Simon hid himself when Jesus came through Samaria. You know, that must have been the kind of a confrontation he would not have been interested in having. Again, we don't know. 
But now the day has arrived in which many Samaritans are hearing about Christ and of his great love for them and about his work on the cross. And so Simon, I would think inspired by Satan, knows that he's not now facing Jesus and he decides to show up. Verse 13 says that Simon believed. And when we read those words, we need to stop and ponder that. Uh, Given that we know that Peter will later have an encounter with Simon, and given that we know what will come of him later, we have to believe that Simon, whatever it is that he believed, was not a true convert. All evangelists are aware of the fact that there are frequently false conversions. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I think, who once met a man on a train quite intoxicated and making quite a scene. And upon seeing the famous preacher, the man loudly said, Ha, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon was to have responded, Well, my good sir, you must be, for you are most assuredly not one of the Lord's. You see, wherever the gospel has gone, there has always been both the good and the bad. There's always been both the genuine and the fraudsters, both those who are truly saved and those who only appear to be such. The good news, however, is that the wild branches will not be prevented from getting grafted into the tree. God's great harvest will come, and it will be made up of Jews and Samaritans, and it will be made up of Romans and of Greeks, and it will be made up of people and nations from every nation in the entire earth. This is God's promise, and this will be done, and God will ensure that the command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations will be kept. Thanks, John. You know, don't you find it amazing how God worked out how the good news would find its way into the Gentile world? Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, so often, I think, Ben, uh, we, uh, you know, sometimes we're frustrated and we say, you know, Lord, how could you have let this happen? Um, and I, I think when we talk that way, we, we, we say, Lord, I don't have faith in your good purposes, nor do I believe that your sovereignty is working for my good, your glory, and the advancement of the gospel. So, you know, we need to come to the Lord and we need to repent of closed hearts and closed minds and this lack of trust that we have. If there's anything that a study of Scripture and then looking honestly at what we see today should teach us is that God is at work. So let's be thankful even for the harsh experiences that we go through God is doing something even in those that we're going to appreciate later. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Beyond Jerusalem, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We want to extend thanks to all those who take the time to encourage us. Here's a special note we just received. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. We're so thankful to hear responses like this from people all over Canada. And we're thankful for those who give financially so that Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives across this nation and beyond. You're joined by thousands who have a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gifts and your prayers are critical. So please continue to support this program so that others would grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us at 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.